Dear congregation, do you see it this morning? You have to look down in order to see up. As you look down into the word of God before you, you are shown a window, through a window, what is above us. An innumerable multitude. What a multitude, unlike any other multitude. A multitude around the throne of God right now. A multitude which will soon be far greater than it is even now. A multitude of those around the throne giving all glory to God, a multitude, in a place that we've never been to physically, and yet a place we are shown in the Word of God because it is so real. A place we have never seen with our physical eyes, and yet a place that we may long for. You don't have to be old to long for it. You can be young. You can be in the midst of life and still have this longing for this place. You don't have to be in great sufferings to long for this place and this multitude. Even a Thanksgiving day can give a desire for this place A thanksgiving day in which you realize that your thanksgiving comes so short compared to what God deserves. And then there can be this longing for this place where there is perfect thanksgiving forevermore. That's what we're shown in this text before us, Revelation 7. Revelation 7, especially verses 9 through 14, 9 through 14 of Revelation 7. Let us listen to these verses with a prayer that we would have eyes to see and hearts to long to join this multitude. The, the multitude before the throne is our, is our theme. Three points. First, Behold them. Second, hear their praise. And third, know their pathway to this place. The multitude before the throne, behold them, hear their praise, and know their pathway. The book of Revelation is such a precious book as the last book in the Word of God because it is so full of comfort for God's people. It's true there are difficult passages in in this book, and there are things that I do not understand about this book. But the main line is so clear. You see it already in the very first chapter, Behold, he cometh. Jesus Christ is coming again. And before he comes... Well, in Revelation 4, verse 1, we read, 
After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened into heaven. Imagine that, children, having a doorway opened into heaven, and you can look through that doorway into heaven and see what is there. Well, there's not a doorway up in the ceiling here that we can look up to, through. But through John, God is showing us in the book of Revelation something of what heaven is like and that God is on the throne there and that Christ is on the throne there. In Revelation 5, John sees a book, a scroll there. It's the book of history of all God's decrees and purposes. It's a book that is sealed with seven seals, and no one can open it. No one can know what is in it. No one can carry out what is there in that book. And then he sees the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, come. And he has the power, he has the authority to open up that scroll and to not only read, but also to show what is in it and also carry it out with his authority as the mediator. And as he opens those seals, John sees in chapter 6 these judgments falling on the earth. For example, in the sixth seal, there's this great earthquake in chapter 6, verse 12, and the heavens are rolled up in verse 14, and the great men of the earth hide themselves in dens and caves and say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the Lord's wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? There is this great multitude at the end of Revelation 6 that are in fear and terror as they they see the Lamb come and filled with wrath against all ungodliness and all unbelief, and they wish to be crushed by the mountains rather than face this one who comes from his throne. They ask, who shall be able to stand? In congregation, who of us would ever want to be gathered with that multitude that is seeking to scatter and to be away from this one who comes. Who of us would want to be part of those who are going on in life without a Savior heading for that? What a contrast is the next verse, or is is what we find in our verse, verse 9. There is this, behold, a great multitude stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. He says, lo, behold. Here is an amazing sight. Having seen those ones scattering in fear makes so amazing that there is this multitude before the throne and there's not a flickering of fear and of terror in one of these ones. Instead, there's this profound reverence and there's this profound joy among them. 
Who are these ones that are around the throne? They're the ones that are sealed in the first part of chapter 7. Verse 3 and 4 tell us that when these, this hurricane of God's fury is about to be unleashed on the earth, there are these angels that are to be restrained from bringing those judgments until this angel has gone about and has sealed the foreheads of God's people. They were to be stamped as belonging to God and being under his protection and therefore need not fear the wrath that will come because they're his. And these sealed ones form the great multitude of verse 9. We may look around and we may sometimes be discouraged and we may sometimes think that there's so many in rebellion, living in rebellion against God and, and there's so few who truly fear and love God. It was no different in the past. There went Noah, eight souls in the ark saved and the judgment upon so many. And the psalmist had to sing the just and godly men are few, the faithful who can find. And Elijah also had to uh, fear at one time that he was the only one left. Isaiah had to say, who hath believed our report? And Christ himself said, enter in at the straight gate. For broad, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. And straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. It's all true. But at the end, this is the vision that we are given of the throne of God and of who are around. It's not just a few. It's not just a scattering in a great, large place. But we read of this, this multitude which is so great that no man can number it. Do you remember, children, how one night Abraham had to go out and he had to look up and he had to look at the stars and have you ever done that? You look at the stars, and the longer you look, the more you see. And he, he could not count all those stars. And God said, so shall thy seed be, so shall your children be. And here we are shown that one day there will be that uncountable multitude, like the stars, there gathered around the throne. And as you see that multitude, you see it from all ages. God has been gathering since right after the fall. And ever since, he's been adding and gathering and adding and gathering throughout the Old Testament. And then with Pentecost and him pouring out his spirit, now the gospel is going forth unto all nations and he is increasingly gathering from, from throughout the nations of this world. And so as you look at that multitude, you see all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, John tells us. They come from everywhere, from all political nations, from the Babylonian empire of long ago 
to America today, to Mali and Liechtenstein and whatever country there is on this world. They come from all nations. They come from all ethnic groups. The French and the Ethiopian and the Chinese and the Dutch and the whatever other nation or ethnic group there may be. They come from all societies, ancient and medieval and modern. They come from all different languages, tongues. You think of how many thousands of languages there are. And it speaks of how they come from all these different languages. And they are all there. God doesn't only have people in our rich Western world. He is perhaps even more in poorer countries, which a century ago hardly had the gospel. But he hasn't uh, abandoned us. He still has a church here. And he is gathering from the, the nations and the places of this world. What a multitude. That will be the true united nations where they are gathered around the throne. And already now a multitude is there. And what will it be for that whole multitude of all God's people to be around his throne one day? On the throne right now sits one who is described in chapter 4, verse 3, as one to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. John reaches for the most precious and brilliant gems to picture the glory of the God upon the throne. And yet this multitude is there surrounding this throne. Revelation 6 had asked, who shall stand? Must his holiness not consume all? Are these people not ones who have, were used to be upon that earth full of sin? And yet they stand. And we read here in verse 9 that they're, they're clothed with white robes. White. It's a sign of purity, of holiness, of brilliance, without any stain, any spot of sin whatsoever. It's white. Every one of them. Not just some, but everyone. Because the only way to be in the presence of a holy God is to be white, to be pure, to be clean. And they all have these white robes. And they also have palm branches in their hand, it says. And a palm branch was the sign of victory and the sign of joy, the sign of triumph. And so they're there with those signs of triumph and joy and victory in their hands. Every oppression is over. Every strife is behind them. They have these palm branches in their hands as they stand in white. And they're standing there, it says, before the throne. That means the focus of all of them is the throne and the one who is on the throne, God and the Lamb. And so they stand there in this posture of fixed attention, of deep respect, of readiness to serve 
As verse 15 tells us, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. All that they are, all that they do, all is devotion to God. Oh, who of us would want to simply join in with the world and end with calling out with that multitude for the rocks and hills to follow them? Who of us would not want to be here before the throne of God, victorious, perfected, and focused on him? God's enemies can seem so strong. They can seem to have the the power in society. But where do we find them? They're, They're not in this picture of Revelation 7. They're gone. They're perished. They've perished. But there are God's people around the throne. Blessed. Blessed forever. What an amazing sight this great multitude is. And let and may this sight sink down within us this morning. This is reality. This is where everything is heading towards. That one multitude of, of, of Revelation 6 crying out in terror, but also this multitude standing before the throne forever. Does that not stir the desire to be there? Will you be there? If you say, Of course, of course, is that an of course? Is that just a natural thing? Is that just a matter of fact thing? There's nothing matter of fact about this whatsoever. Not at all. To be there is the greatest wonder imaginable. How do I know? It's because I hear what they are saying. And they don't say, oh, it's just normal. They're amazed. Do you hear their praise? Our second point, hear their praise. Their salvation is not as something just matter of fact. No, their salvation is something that leads them to burst out in praise to God. Hear what they say in verse 10. Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. The first word that comes out of their lips here is salvation. That's why they're there. It's because God is a God of salvation. There's no other explanation for why they, sinners, may be there before the throne in white. It's because of this salvation of God. Salvation to our God and unto the Lamb. Salvation is deliverance from a deserved hell. Deliverance from being with that other multitude who is calling out for the rocks to come upon them and crush them and being given the opposite of what you deserve and that is that eternal life. 
Salvation is deliverance from the anger of God to receive and to enjoy forevermore the love of God. It's to be delivered from sin in all its aspects and to be perfected and glorified before God. Salvation is to be delivered from all the consequences of sin forever in order to enjoy the fullness of blessing with God forever. Salvation is unto our God. In other words, they're there attributing all this salvation to God. They know that it all comes from God and it's through God and therefore to the glory of God. Salvation to our God, they sing. We did not save ourselves. We did not contribute to our salvation. We are not here because we're better than anyone else that was ever on the face of this earth. We are only here because of divine salvation, that God is a God of salvation, that he has come to us, that he found us, that he picked us up, that he pulled us out of that pit of mire, that he delivered us from our spiritual graves, that he brought us out of condemnation, and that he saved us, and therefore, to all eternity, salvation to our God forever. That's the song. That's the praise. It's salvation to this God who in eternity devised and planned and thought out that way of salvation and in time carried it out and also enabled them to share in it and has perfected it as are there before the throne. Salvation to our God and to the Lamb. Notice the emphasis especially on the Lamb. The Lamb. That's where God reveals his salvation, isn't it? Isn't that where you've seen salvation? In the Lamb. God's Lamb. The Lamb God has provided his own son come in the flesh to be that lamb that was slain as a real human being offering himself up as a sacrifice for sin. How is their salvation? It's in the lamb. And so salvation to our God and to the lamb this great multitude cries out with a loud voice, it says. Here, as believers, you can be so silent at times, so hesitant at times. Or you can sing loudly in church, but yet your heart can be so cold. Or not. But there, there's perfect praise Salvation to our God and to the Lamb. Loud praise because he's worthy of all praise. Oh, do you, do you hear it this morning? Through this word, we have a window. And through that window, we may not only look, but we may also hear. We, as it were, in this text, we stand at the window of heaven. Do you hear that singing? Salvation to our God. 
And is it a song that echoes in your heart this morning? That you say, yes, salvation to our God and unto the Lamb. That it stirs your heart to already to sing that song here below. Because you've learned that song, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. You've learned it. Perhaps in the depths like Jonah. Where did Jonah sing this song of heaven? He sang it in the very belly of the whale in Jonah too, or of the great fish. He said, salvation is of the Lord. Isn't that where we learn this song of heaven? When all human hope is gone, and where we learn we can never save ourselves, we only have sin and helplessness and guilt. But there God comes with his gospel, from his word, and he shows us that salvation you can't work out, I've worked out, and I give. And there you begin to sing the song of heaven, salvation to our God. Isn't that amazing? That a poor sinner here below already begins to sing the song of heaven by that grace of this God of salvation by his Holy Spirit. And oh, then, then you need not wait till heaven to join with these ones who sing. You may sing already this morning. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation to our God. Oh, do you hear, hear them sing? Is it not a call for others to join. And as we hear them sing, we do hear that others do join. Because there around the throne, chapter 4 already shows us there is the throne, and around the throne there are these four beasts, or these four living creatures, these four living ones, who have, these, these have wings and who are full of eyes, they are these spiritual beings, and the one is a head of a, a ox, and the other of a calf, and the other of a man, and the other of a eagle. And they are there, and they are giving praise to God as these angelic beings representing all of creation. And then it says, around them there are the four and twenty elders around the throne, and they also are falling down and worshiping God. And then there is this great multitude that we have in our text. And then notice what else the text says. In verse 11, that all the angels stood round about the throne. It's as if they are surrounding everyone else. And what do they do? They fall before the throne on their faces and worship God. There is this great humility, this great reverence, this great adoration, and they worship God. These are the angels that never fell. These are the angels that have never sinned. These are the angels who need no salvation. 
And yet when they hear these redeemed around the throne singing salvation to our God, they cannot remain silent, but they also say, Amen. They say amen to the song of the redeemed multitude. They, they confirm the truth of it and the worthiness of God to be praised for salvation because these angels love the one who's on the throne and they love what brings glory to the one on the throne and that's why they delight in that salvation that so reveals the glory of God. That's why the angels burst forth in songs of praise and joy when they see one sinner here in this building repenting. Because they see the glory of God saving a sinner here. And if they rejoice over one sinner in this building repenting, how much more to see that innumerable multitude before the throne of God. Do you hear them? As we're by this window of scripture this morning, hear what they sing. Amen, verse 12. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. They sing praise unto God. Blessing be to our God. To speak blessing is to speak well of someone. And who is worthy of being spoken well of, of being blessed, being praised, but God, who is only good and glorious. Blessing. And if already now there are moments, do you have those moments when you join with the psalmist and say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all within me, bless his holy name. What must this heavenly song be? Blessing and glory. Glory to our God. Glory is the splendor of God's attributes which shine so clearly in salvation. He is glorious, and he must receive glory, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever, glory and wisdom. What infinite divine wisdom is revealed in all the works of God, in his creation, there's such marvelous wisdom, and also in his great work of salvation, we have the display of his marvelous wisdom to show how he could be just and the justifier of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is his marvelous wisdom in his care for his people, guiding through life in all the complexities of life, and yet using it all to prepare and to shape and to bring one day to glory. All wisdom be to our God. And thanksgiving. He must receive thanksgiving and gratitude for all that he is. All that he is is worthy of thanks and all that he does is worthy of thanks. And if the call here is in everything give thanks, not just on a thanksgiving day a few days ago, but every day give thanks. There it's perfected. 
there's that eternal thanksgiving service of worship to the God worthy of all thanksgiving and honor. One man speaks of this as the sheer holiness and integrity of God. Honor. All that is honorable is what God is. And he deserves all the honor. Lastly, power and might to our God. God's work of creation reveals such power. And all the more his work of redemption, what but almighty power can explain the incarnation of God, the Son who became man? What other than almighty power can explain that work of of resurrection and of regeneration and of being able to bring this whole multitude before his throne. This is the display of the power of God and all power to our God. He must be praised for his power. God's glory is so inexpressible. One word can't describe it. Seven words can't exhaust it. His glory is beyond our every thought. It's beyond the conception of the very angels because it's divine glory. God must receive glory. Do you hear it? He's receiving it from the redeemed and from that multitude of angels. He's receiving glory and honor and power and might and thanksgiving. And they do so, it says, forever and ever. Right now, and to the endless ages of glory, he will receive glory and honor and might and power. Here below, there's things we eventually tire of. As children, at first you're so excited this new game, and you play it all the time, and you get tired of it. And you're so excited with a new toy, and eventually you tire of it. But these angels never tire of giving praise to God, and the redeemed never tire of proclaiming salvation to our God. That's why John Newton said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as a sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Is that what you long for? To be done with yourself. To be done with that self-centeredness and you're seeking your own honor and your own reputation. To be done with your own reliance upon your own strength and your own wisdom. To be done with sin that so brings dishonor to him. And to give him all the honor and all the praise forevermore. Is that what makes you long for glory? It's true, there are other aspects to glory, and they are wonderful as well. Verse 15 through 17 speaks 
of his care and of his shepherding and of his feeding and of those streams and those fountains of of the water of eternal life. It speaks of him so blessing that they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. There's no suffering anymore. It even says that he shall wipe every tear from their eye. It will be gone. Yes, those are all glorious things about heaven. But is this the greatest? That there he is in the center and he receives glory and honor and praise. Is that so that at times you sing what tongue can tell his glory forth or utter all his praise? My tongue is not sufficient. And what a blessing it is when God is beginning to tune, to tune your tongue, to tune your heart to his praise. Not unto us, Unto thy name be the glory and the praise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet you still find yourself such a riddle, don't you? When you hear the angels say amen and they they burst forth, when they hear the redeemed sing, and God, as it were, brings us to this window of heaven this morning, that at times you don't understand yourself. How can my heart be so cold to his praise? How can I be so busy with so many other things? How can I be so forgetful of God? How can I so value so many things here below as greater than this God worthy of all praise? You don't understand yourself. But is that why you also long for that day to be faultless before his throne? with this great multitude. And maybe at times it makes you even think, how can I think that I will be there when you look at yourself and you say, what am I? There's so much that's not to his praise. And I, 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 how can I fit there in that place? How can I be there? And at times you think, will I really be there? That's a question especially for those whose hearts are not tuned to God's praise to ask, how can I be there? Those this morning who may be still living for your own pleasure and your own desires and your own name and your own little empire or your own business or your own home or your own whatever, your own family, your own children, your own wife. your own hobbies, your own sports, your own whatever, your own future that you're working towards in high school. But it's not about his honor and his praise and his wisdom and his power. It's about yourself. And you're out of tune with this multitude. And maybe you say you like singing psalters. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But are they the song of your heart? And maybe there's also others who don't even like so singing about the Lord and his praise and you'd rather sing about other things. You'd rather listen to other type of music, music that you'd never play here in this church building. Your 
heart, heart is out of tune. Out of tune with this song in heaven. Do you even want to go to heaven? You say, yes. That's good. But do you really? If your heart is out of tune with what fills heaven, why would you delight in heaven? So you don't want to go to hell. No, you don't. You don't want to be with that multitude that cries out, rocks and mountains fall on us. No, you don't. You don't want to go to hell. Your heart is out of tune with glory. What do you actually want then? You say, I actually want to just stay here. You want to just enjoy life here. My friend, you won't be able to long. Soon it will be over, and soon it will be one or the other. There's no in-between. And turning your back on the God of heaven and failing to desire to glorify him, you turn your back on the God of salvation. Is that not something to confess before God this very moment, to come before him and confess the folly of your heart and of your mind that you'd rather just live on here and enjoy the things of this life here? Is that not something to confess before the God who comes to you in the gospel as a God of salvation of sinners? And ask him, Lord, is there yet a way? whereby I may be cleansed and I, my heart may be tuned and I may one day be with that multitude. Delight in it. How can we be there? That's our final point. The great multitude before the throne, behold them through that window, hear their praise, but also thirdly, know the way to that glory. As John views this great multitude of people these, this, and this heavenly host of angels and these 24 elders and these four living ones all joined in praise to God, there is that one elder that comes in verse 13 and he asks him and he says, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? Now this elder is there, the elder knows the answer, but the elder asks the question in order to teach John something. Also as parents, we ask our children questions, we know the answer, but we ask them in order to make them think. And so this elder is sent by God to ask this question to John. And John answers, Sir, thou knowest. He wants to be taught. He's not one who knows all the answers. It's a good thing when we want to be taught and we don't have all the answers. Sir, thou knowest. And he gives the answer and says two things about them. First, these are they which have come out of great tribulation. They only gained that palm branch of victory through tribulation. Victory means nothing if there's no battle. And the greater the battle, the more amazing the victory is and to hold that palm branch in your hand. And it says these are ones that have come out of that tribulation. 
The previous chapters have spoken of many tribulations of poverty and sickness and pain and persecution. Christ also speaks of the great tribulation in the last days. And there's this special emphasis also on martyrdom in this last book of the Bible. Martyrdom that countless have undergone throughout the centuries. Martyrdom that may also come especially towards the end that many die for the faith and for the name of Christ. This great tribulation of our text includes all that suffering, all that martyrdom, all that persecution, all that oppression that there is, but it includes even more because it's not just some in this multitude were martyrs and so came out of great tribulation or some of these were in persecution and came out of that persecution, but he sees that whole multitude and he sees them as ones that have come out of great tribulation. Some felt it more, some felt it less, but they all came out of it. Because Paul exhorted the disciples in Antioch in Acts 14 verse 22 to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. He says expect it. The Lord Jesus himself said, in this world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The word for tribulation means oppression and distress. It's something that presses and squeezes you. It's something that weighs you down. Whatever weighs you down and presses you is a tribulation. The Lord Jesus says you must expect it. We can be so focused on, on, on having space to have our comfortable life and pushing out anything that would make us suffer and be difficult. And we're, we can be so focused just on our comfortable life. The Lord Jesus says, there will be tribulation. You could expect it. And that tribulation is not a reason to turn away from God. God is harsh. God is cruel. It's not reason to succumb in the midst of the pressures of a hostile world and be sucked in with the world rather than suffer. Do you see them as ones who have come out of this great tribulation? Ask them, do you regret enduring in the midst of that tribulation. Ask them, do you regret that Christ kept you in the midst of that tribulation and did not allow you to make shipwreck of the faith and seek your pleasure in the world? Oh, they don't regret it whatsoever. They're so thankful that God kept them in the midst of that tribulation and in his time brought them out of that tribulation. They in glory are so thankful. Now, Paul understands even more of what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. For our light affliction or tribulation worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. All those in glory now look back and they see all those sufferings were indeed not worthy to be compared to the glory which they now enjoy. And in saying that and in showing that to us in this passage, God is coming to his people in the midst of suffering here right now. 
and say, you're, you're in the midst of suffering. It can be in many different forms, and our time is running out, but whatever suffering you're in, he says, my child, do you not see that multitude? I've taken them all out of all that tribulation and suffering that they went through. My child, do you think I'll abandon you in your suffering? Will I? All these have come through it. And so I will take all my children through the tribulation and use that, that tribulation and that distress in order to sanctify, in order to, to direct upwards to my throne and one day to take me, take them to myself. The day is coming when every burden will be lifted of circumstances in life and of those burdens within and especially that burden of sin will be gone. How can that be? There's the second thing it says about this great multitude. Who are they? It says, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That whole multitude came there one way, and it's through the blood of the Lamb. He's called here the, the Lamb. As I said already, the Lamb who gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. He is the one that John the Baptist pointed to and said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. All the lambs slain in the Old Testament pointed to this one great Lamb of God who shed his blood and his blood cleanses now from all sin and makes white. He is the one who suffered the greatest tribulation, the greatest suffering. And there was no God to shield him from that suffering and to be a refuge in the midst of the suffering. Instead, he is the one who, when that hour of tribulation came upon him, it was the weight of the wrath of God that pressed down upon him, and he was not spared in any way from that wrath to deliver from it and that his blood would make white in the sight of God. What's that say about this multitude? It says on the one hand, they were as sinful and as red with sin as anyone else was of themselves. Unfit to be there, fit to be with the ones crying out for the rocks to crush them. But for the sake of Christ who was crushed, they may be there. Christ's blood cleansed them. Notice what it says. They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. In other words, they went to that fountain. That fountain open for sin and uncleanness that fountain where, where sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. They went. They couldn't stay away. 
and they found him true to his word, the one who cleanses. It's only receiving cleansing through the blood of the Lamb that we will be there forevermore. There's no other way, and there's no other way needed, because there's power in that blood to cleanse sinners. Whoever you are, however you've come here. Calvin said that in the preaching, it's the blood of Christ that drips from the pulpit. And what he meant by that is that blood comes so close to us. And then either we trample upon it and we end up being crushed or we come. Here I am with all my sin, with all my guilt to receive its cleansing power and find him true to his word. Oh, my friend, that multitude and all the angels and the one on the throne himself, he's the one who preaches that gospel to you so that you'd seek and you'd find and receive cleansing in the blood of Christ to fit you for that place and being cleansed to long for that place to so long for that place where all praise is given to him that already now you desire to give all praise to him alone. Salvation to our God. Amen. O Lord God, we pray to thee and we give thee thanks that thou art indeed the God of salvation. Thou art the God so full of grace. And thou hast planned it, thou hast carried it out, thou dost apply it, thou art perfected. Thou art the Alpha, thou art the Omega, thou art the beginning, thou art the end, and thou art everything of salvation. Oh, what will that be? To be before thy throne, cleansed in the blood of Christ, white and with a palm branch of victory, to call out salvation to our God forever and ever and ever. O oh Lord God, cleanse each one of us, prepare each one of us for that place and that none of us would call out for the rocks to fall upon them. But Lord, that we would desire that with the most ardent desire when Christ shall return and all his, thy promises shall be fulfilled in him. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Bless us further in this day, that this may be a day in which we, we see through that window, albeit through a glass darkly, the glory of thee upon thy throne. Receive our thanks and hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.